We're going to get going. My name is Peter Gettler. It's my honor and privilege to be the president of the Cato Institute. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Thanks especially to uh, all the generous sponsors who make Cato's work possible. We, we so appreciate what you do for us and for, uh, for our mission and the cause of liberty. Um, I was in Russia a couple of months ago in August. My wife and I in a small group traveled to Russia. It's the second time I've been there in the last two years. Uh, meeting with uh, opposition folks, such as they are, because the uh, regime has been so ruthless that the uh, opposition in Russia is quite enfeebled. But on both of those trips, I met with a, uh, a young man in his uh, 20s, maybe he's close to 30 now, Mikhail Svetov, and he's one of the best-known libertarians in Russia, and he's become something of a YouTube star. He actually uh, travels around the country. He raises money on the internet. And in the first eight months of this year, up to the time that we met with him, he had visited 38 cities in Russia, lecturing about freedom and liberalism and libertarianism. Um, this is in front of crowds between 1,000 and 2,000 people. And he's even had rallies as large as 25 to 35,000 people protesting things such as internet censorship and oppression by the regime. Um, he's been beaten up a few times. Uh, in September, a month after we were with him, he was arrested and detained. He was, he was in jail for about 10 days. And during the time he was in jail, apparently a follower of Alexei Navalny, a leftist follower of Alexei Navalny, and Alexei Navalny at this point is probably the most prominent opposition figure in Russia. But this, um, ally of Navalny sent Mikhail, while he was in jail, a copy of a book by Noam Chomsky. And uh, Mikhail, after he was released, told the media that this is a very kind thing to do for a libertarian because it allowed him to forget his circumstances for a moment as he was able to channel all his fury and rage towards Noam Chomsky <laughs> rather than his uh, predicament. Um, I take such inspiration from these people. Cynthia and I have had you know, the pleasure of traveling to many countries that aren't unfree, meeting people who are risking everything, risking getting their heads bashed in or getting thrown in prison or even their very lives in order to make their countries more free. And we always return home not only with that sense of inspiration but a really heavy sense of responsibility because uh, if there are people in the world who are willing to risk everything to try to make their countries a bit more free, uh, shame on us if we are not successful in maintaining the United States as the most prominent beacon of liberty around the world for these people. It's very important to them, and needless to say, it's important for us. And I always feel the sense of responsibility because our task just doesn't seem as hard as what they're facing. So if we fail, I think that's kind of on us. And that's why so many people in this room and my colleagues you know, are all in to try to make this happen, to make sure that we pass on to our children and grandchildren, you know, a country that's at least as free with as much opportunity as the one that was given to us. And if we're not successful in that, it will indeed be a shameless legacy, and a uh, shameful legacy. And you know, I think that's a sense of mission that we really try to have drive us uh, at Cato. And again, we thank you for the support that, that makes it possible. You know, that support also gives us a sense of responsibility because we're absolutely committed to uh, getting the most out of the resources that you entrust to us. 
Uh, I like to say that you know we make two promises to our supporters. One is that the first is that Cato will never change, and the second is that Cato will always change. And uh, it's not as contradictory as you'd think. We are so mindful of the 40-year, the hard-earned reputation that Cato has developed for principle, integrity, and independence. And we're uh, determined to uphold that, even in very tribal political environments like the one uh, that we're in now, where you're expected to line up with either one side or the other. And if you're principled and you're, you're trying to make uh, recommendations or, or advocate things based on your philosophy or analysis or facts, uh, sometimes you find you're criticizing one side or the other and sometimes you're supporting them. Um, and I think that's exactly where we're, we're supposed to be. But it's also a very unpopular place to be these days when you're expected to be resident either in the red foxhole or the blue foxhole. And uh, being outside of the foxhole as Cato operates is, uh, is difficult in the current environment. But we feel that uh, upholding that tradition of principle is really important, especially since it's our most potent weapon in our mission. You know, Ajit Pai, the FCC chairman, came in earlier this year and had lunch at Cato. And uh, we were talking about um, we wanted to do more in some of the issues that are under his purview. And he was all in for that. He said, you know, when Cato speaks on these issues, it carries so much more weight than other free market organizations because of who you are, because of your reputation for integrity and principle and, and independence. And uh, it would just be so foolish of us to squander that, even under political pressure, you know, to do so. So that's something that's never going to change. But everything else is on the table. Um, and we're trying, to, we're trying to imbue our organization with a, with a uh, an ethos that we're trying to get better every day, and I think we're doing that. Um, after that meeting with Ajit Pai, we, uh, we established our project on emerging technologies under Matthew Feeney's leadership in order to make sure that uh, the citizens of the United States and the world are not deprived of all the great gifts that technology is going to give to us because of potential government regulation or interference. Um, we have uh, asked about 15% of our colleagues to leave in the last year or so, um, not because we're shrinking, but because we want to get better. And um, we feel that uh, that responsibility that we have to our sponsors means making tough decisions in order to continually improve the organization. We have a very well-developed strategic vision that we think is going to continue to allow us to increase our impact. We have a pretty exciting um, portfolio of short-term projects that we believe can create meaningful change in the intermediate term while we're still um, adhering to that important role of our, of our mission to help bend the long-term arc of ideas more towards classical liberalism and, uh, and liberty. Um, we have a great digital presence that reaches millions of people. But we hired this summer a chief digital officer who spent a decade at a pretty heavyweight media company, Gannett. He was the vice president of digital development at USA Today when the first implementation of USA Today uh, was developed for the tablet when the iPad was released. And we think that uh, combining his technological skills with uh, a broader uh, pool of creative talent will allow us to get 
uh, a broader portfolio of engaging content based on our existing research in front of a much broader audience. Some of you may be familiar with our libertarianism.org platform. Um, we got a significant grant a couple of years ago that we've used to convert that platform into a very effective means for uh, reaching young people and students with the, uh, the message of liberty. Um, people sometimes quite deservedly criticize libertarians for always saying what they're against instead of what they're for. And one of the things we're trying to do there is we've hired a columnist who's basically um, writing about technology and entrepreneurship, not policy, in order to draw an audience in to show them the kind of bright future we can all have in a more radically free society. Uh, we have a project called Visions of Liberty where we're gonna be publishing material that is gonna show the world we could all be living in if our policy prescriptions were actually followed. And I think we always need to remind ourselves that, that preaching a message of optimism is, uh, is so important. You know, we have an incredible hand to play in that regard. So I think it's something that, uh, that we need to always continuously improve. Um, and we're, uh, we're experimenting with some things that uh, we'll hopefully have some, some uh, reports for you in the future that uh, I think are really gonna allow us to, uh, one, of the, one of the things I've realized since I've uh, been in the liberty business the last three years as a second career is that um, I just think so many resources are wasted preaching to the choir. It's really important that we come together in events like this where we, we're with like-minded people and we talk about issues um, and we kind of get recharged for the battle. But we have to know that most of our work is trying to engage constructively with the people who disagree with our ideas or aren't aware of them. And uh, I'm really excited. I mean, we have a mission to be, and I think this is something we do well already, but we have the scope to do a much better job of being the best organization in reaching the kind of unconverted persuadables. And I hope in the next six to 12 months, we'll have a lot more to, uh, to say about that. But it's uh, exciting times at Cato albeit against the backdrop of, we know, always a challenging environment for liberty. Um, and we thank you so much for your, uh, your support, uh, your advocacy of our principles, sharing our principles and our values, and uh, your financial support as well, which is so important. It's my real pleasure to uh, introduce one of my newest colleagues at, at Cato. Um, right before Christmas, a number of years ago, Cynthia and I and two of our daughters spent a few days in Nevis, and I was laying on a hammock reading a book called Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty. And the author of that book, which was fascinating and eye-opening, and I would commend it to all of you, was a, gen a Turkish gentleman named Mustafa Akyol. And I thought it would be a good idea to have uh, Mustafa um, come speak at a Cato event. So in Utah two years ago, he spoke at our Cato Club 200 retreat. And uh, that was the beginning. He had a long relation, longer relationship with Cato, but that was the beginning of a relationship uh, with me. And uh, Mustafa has joined Cato uh, at the end of the summer as a senior fellow in our Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where he will be addressing those vexing issues of Islam, modernity, um, how to, he'll be an important voice uh, for liberalism in the Muslim world as he has been for, for several years now. Um, Mustafa is one of those uh, individuals who does take risk for, uh, for liberty. He gave what we would consider a fairly benign speech in Kuala Lumpur a year and a half ago. 
and uh, was detained at the airport um, before he left. And there was a time that was pretty scary, I think, wondering if he was uh, going to be allowed to leave, which he ultimately was. Um, he publishes subversive columns in the New York Times, where he's been a regular contributor for a number of years. And I say subversive because the first column that he published under his new Cato byline this summer, um, he sent me a picture of how it appeared in Pakistan, where you opened the New York Times to the editorial page, and there was a big blank space where, uh, where the censors had beaten the readers to... Uh, to Mustafa's column. Uh, he'll be working on a book at Cato in the coming years called The, the Reopening of the Muslim Mind for, uh, for Freedom, Reason, and Liberalism. I might have that a little bit wrong. Tolerance, I'm sorry. Um, so please join me in, in welcoming our senior fellow, Mustafa Akio. Good morning, and thank you. Thank you, Peter, for this great introduction. And thanks to you all for being here and being friends and supporters of Cato. Uh, what am I doing, and what does it mean? Uh, I'll try to explain it a little bit. Uh, so my title is, is Islam Compatible with Freedom. Uh, I gave a talk on the same theme in Wellesley College, which was not welcomed by the liberals of the college, which were not very liberal. They, they thought I was offensive to Muslims, whereas, whereas I'm a Muslim myself, and I think this is an important issue. But that's a separate discussion. Uh, I'll begin by actually recall, explaining what happened to me in Malaysia last September, I mean, September 2017. I've been to Malaysia five times in the past 10 years, because in Malaysia, you have some Muslim liberal initiatives and a very orthodox authoritarian establishment, so there's a battle going on between them. So Malaysians need ammunition you know, for these liberal ideas. So I was one of the people they brought several times. There's an institution called Islamic Renaissance Front. They published my book in Malay, did a lot of events. So in 2017, September, they said, can you come again? We organized these great panels. And I said, like, I'm in Wellesley. Malaysia is like the other end of the planet, but okay, I'll go. So I did, I, I took the flight very long to Kuala Lumpur, and we had those events. Uh, the first one went okay. The second one was on a very sensitive topic, apostasy. Like, can you leave your religion and choose another religion or become an atheist, right? And in a free society, yes, of course, I mean, that's your choice. But in some Muslim-majority countries, that is not the case. In Saudi Arabia and in Iran, Apostasy is considered as a crime, and the punishment is death penalty. So this is a sensitive issue. And Malaysians are moderate, so they're proud to be moderate. So they don't execute the apostates. They send them to a rehabilitation center. So I gave this 30-minute speech, and I said, you can find online, and I said, listen, you should not send people to a rehabilitation center, and we Muslims should tolerate people if they change their religion. We don't want that, maybe, but you know, that's their choice. I refer to the Quran. There is a specific verse, la ikraha fi din in Arabic, which means there is no compulsion in religion. I said, the Quran says so. Why don't we take that more seriously? I went over some medieval jurisprudence and theology and so on and so forth. And finally, I said, listen, faith is not something you can impose. You cannot police faith, right? So... People liked it, they applauded, and the audience left, and then five men walked in, and they said, 
we are the religion police. I said, okay. So they, they heard complaints about my talk, and uh, they asked a few questions, why I came, who brought me, and so on and so forth. And they said, we will watch your video and then let you know. So next morning I woke up, I was all over the news because the police summoned me to the religion police headquarters. I mean, they have a police unit called the religion police, so they have headquarters, they want me to go there. And my host said, no, no, don't go, you know, kill some time, take the flight tonight, and we will deal with through lawyers. And I listened to that advice. And in the evening, I went to the airport, got my boarding pass. I was hoping to get some sparkling water, maybe wine, depending on the facilities. And the passport police that controlled me panicked when she saw my name, and she called other police, and other police came, and they took me to the police unit at the airport. And then the religion police came. And they said, we will redo your arrest order. Are you going to cooperate? I was like, do I have options? I'll listen to what you're saying. I'll cooperate. And they said, you violated the law for, uh, which bans teaching religion without permission from the state. And the punishment is two years in jail. So we'll take you tonight, and tomorrow you'll be taken to a Sharia court. And I didn't know what they do to, to people in Sharia court in Malaysia. So it was a stressful moment. So they, they took me, they put me in the in a cell in the police department, the religion police department. Next morning, they took me to a Sharia court with a long-bearded man who was trained in Saudi Arabia and, you know, women with headscarves and all that. And they questioned me for two hours, and they asked me, why did you quote the Quran? I said, like, why can I not quote the Quran? I mean, uh, I would understand that later. Ultimately, they let me go. They said, we'll release you. And so after 18 hours of detention, I was like, thank God, OK, I, I'm now going again. But I later learned that I was lucky because it was made possible by some diplomacy. Uh, when I was arrested, my wife, who was in Wellesley at the time, called my father in Istanbul, who's a prominent journalist in Turkey, who called Turkey's former president, not the current president, which we would not have great relations with, but the former president, who was more liberal, and uh, he, he, they're friends, and he said, oh yeah, the Sultan of Malaysia is my friend. So he called the Sultan of Malaysia, and the Sultan's advisor called the court. So the court got the order from the top that let this guy go. So that was what saved me, but it could have been more complicated. Uh, and it was all over the news in Malaysia. I mean, I, uh, I, my photos were everywhere, generally with the head of the religion police, this gentleman here. Uh, and my statements, I mean, human rights groups protested the arrest, and my statements were in the media and everything. So this is when I was leaving the airport. Um, and they let me go, but they banned my book. So five days after my release, my book was released, I mean, declared to be banned in the country, both in Malay and English versions. Uh, and it's still one of the banned books right now in Malaysia. And now, of course, I wanted to write about this story for the New York Times, right? I, mean, I got on my plane and returning to Wellesley. But I was curious about one thing. Why were, there, were they so mad at me for quoting a verse from the Quran? Uh, that verse, actually not a full verse, it's a part of a verse, has become actually the motto of liberal Muslims around the world in the past couple of decades, even the past century. It's, it's simple. It says, there shall be no compulsion in religion. In Surah Al-Baqarah, the second chapter of the Quran, 256. And you know, liberal Muslims love to quote this. It's on websites. People put there on the t-shirt, there shall be no compulsion in religion. So we don't want religion police. We don't want autocracy. We don't want inquisition and all that. Um, but the Malaysians translate the words a little bit differently, just like the Saudis do. 
And I, I suspected that that was ca the case because of their questions. And I entered into their website before I was getting on the plane, actually, on my way. Jakim, that's their religious institution. So the, of, this is a screenshot from Jakim website about their English translation. So uh, the same words, there shall be no compulsion in religion, but they insert something in parentheses to explain it. It says, in becoming a Muslim. So what's the difference between there's no compulsion in religion, general, and there's no compulsion in religion only in becoming a Muslim? Well, the difference is they imply that this word only means you will not be forced to enter Islam. But if you want to exit, that's not allowed. And when you're in the religion, I mean, Malaysian liberals jokingly say it's like Hotel California, right? You can check in, but you can never check out. Um, you, are, you can enter, but you can leave. Plus, when you're in the religion, the police has jurisdiction over you. They, they will check whether you're drinking alcohol, whether you're fasting in Ramadan, and all that, you know, authoritarianism. And I wrote about this, how they actually sometimes twist the Quran or insert meanings into the Quran, which are not there, just to you know, continue their authoritarianism in the name of religion. Now, just a few takes from the story. This was my dispute with the Malaysian religion police. And there are many other examples out there in the world. If you follow the Muslim world, I mean, there are news of liberals being arrested by Saudis, Iranians, and sometimes being chopped off by, you know, in consulates. I mean, it happened recently. But this is happening not because that they represent Islam and we, the liberals, are secular people who are defying Islam. No, I'm a Muslim. I'm proud of my faith. But I, have, I offer a different interpretation of Islam. So this is a battle within Islam, not between, let's say, secular liberalism and the religion itself, uh, for, uh, for, for sure. Secondly, the same battle took place in other religious traditions as well, especially Christianity. Now, Christians today don't kill blasphemers or apostates and so on and so forth. They accept liberal values, defend them. But Christians always were not this tolerant or this liberal. I mean, if you go back to Europe five centuries ago, you would find people being burned at the stake for being heretics. The Inquisition would torture people for their own good. Catholics and Protestants were, were each other's throats for just being from a different sect. Uh, that changed thanks to what we broadly call the Enlightenment. That changed thanks to what we call liberalism. Uh, thinkers like John Locke came and said, tolerance is a good thing, and you know, we should leave it to God to punish the sinners or heretics, and we should tolerate people. I mean, I've been reading all that classical literature over the years, and well, John Locke is speaking about the exact same problem that we're having still today. I mean, they solved the problem a few centuries before, so that's very good. But I think in Islam, we are in the same moment right now. We're having similar discussions, which means Christianity changed, you know, Islam can change too. It's not an easy battle, but it has to, it has to be, I think, pursued. This is what I'm working on. And I'm working on a broad theme that is generally called Islamic liberalism. Uh, it's a current in the Muslim world, and liberalism in the classical sense, I think, because in the US, I realize it means something different, you know, at least on campuses, you know. Uh, classical liberalism in the sense that, you know, you should not be coerced against your will on anything. And uh, this battle, I mean, this began Islamic liberalism in the 19th century when some Muslim intellectuals admired many things in Europe and they looked at Islamic tradition more critically. 
They thought there's a layers of you know dogmatism put up on the Quran. They offered a new reading of the Quran. It's there. But you know, it made some progress here and there. Then you know, the others came back, the counter-enlightenment came back. So this battle is going on in the Muslim world. So I'm one of the people who's trying to articulate and advance and popularize this kind of notion of Islamic liberalism. And one key element here is that Islamic liberalism will go forward not merely by imported ideas from the West. They're great. They help us. It's good to read John Locke. It's good to read John Stuart Mill. But there is a re resistance sometimes against these ideas precisely because they're coming from the West. Uh, it's not authentic. It's them who's imposing this on us. Uh, and the tensions between the Western world and the Muslim world, the geostrategic tensions, make it worse sometimes. And that's why I very much agree with Cato's foreign policy, which is based on peace and diplomacy and restraint rather than bombing more Muslim countries, let's say. Uh, which actually makes our job very difficult because it's very difficult to argue about liberal values when you're you know, having an occupation and bombs and so on and so forth. Uh, so Islamic liberalism will advance by sometimes getting some inspiration from the West, but also finding roots within Islam itself to go forward. And that's my first book was about, my new book uh, that uh, Peter mentioned, Reopening the Muslim Mind for Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. I just began working on it a few months ago since I joined Cato, but it's also the work of the past 10 years and even 20 years. It's about finding roots within Islamic tradition itself for articulating liberal ideas. One would be the worst of the Quran. There's no compulsion in religion and other themes in the Quran and some prophetic examples. But also, there are some key thinkers in medieval Islam that actually had wonderful ideas, but they were pushed aside or they were forgotten. So I want to revive their ideas and their perspectives. So I just want to give you two examples from these interesting, inspiring medieval Muslim thinkers. One of them is Ibn Rushd, known as, in the Latin European tradition, as Averroes. Here is his statue in Cordoba. I don't know if you've been to Cordoba. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth to visit. I mean, southern Spain. Uh, of course, Cordoba was the, the, the capital for, for a while the, of Andalusia, the Spanish Muslim kingdom, because in southern Spain was a Muslim kingdom for many centuries, from the 7th century to the 15th century. And uh, there was also Jewish philosophers like Maimonides, so there was actually a coexistence of Jews, Muslims, and Christians in Spain, about which there's a whole great literature now. So Ibn Rushd was one of the key thinkers in that period. And he was a jurist, and he had interesting ideas about more reformist perspective in Islam, but also he was a philosopher, and his key contribution to world history was that he discovered, revived Aristotle, and commented on Aristotle. And his commentaries on Aristotle brought the green thinker back to the European agenda. Before Averroes, Europeans didn't know much about Aristotle. It was lost. It was banned in, you know, in the medieval era. So his work brought Greek philosophy back to Europe. And Thomas Aquinas got from him and other European thinkers of the time, early modernity. And that's not unknown. Again, you can find this in Wikipedia. But there's another aspect of uh, Averroes that is little noticed. And I learned this from actually the former rabbi of Britain, Jonathan Sachs, who's also prominent religious intellectual. Jonathan Sachs says in his book 2015 that Averroes was not just a pioneer of Aristotle, 
but also of free speech. How? Let's get a quote from him. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, one of the achievements of early Islam was to rescue the works of Plato, Aristotle, and their disciples from oblivion. A key figure in this was the philosopher Ibn Rushd, known in the West as Averroes, who made a powerful case for freedom of speech in pursuit of the truth. You should always, he said, cite the views of your opponents. Silencing them is an implicit admission of the weakness of your case. Now, this is not rocket science maybe today. Maybe it is, and depending on where you're looking. But it was incredible idea at the time, because the norm was to say, if someone has heretical ideas, don't even mention them. Just condemn them. But Averroes was, and in his commentaries, he had full quotations from Imam Ghazali, a more conservative Islamic thinker that he was criticizing. But he gave him the full quote. Otherwise, it would be unfair. So he wanted to have this honest discussion. And Rabbi Sachs shows how this Averroes method and attitude was picked up later by Rabbi Yudah Löwe, who lived in Prague a few centuries later. And he says, he was right. We should not silence the heretics or unbelievers. We should show what they're thinking and then put our responses. And, and then he shows how the same idea was picked up by some Enlightenment thinkers going all the way to John Stuart Mill. So when Muslims face something like free speech, they should not say, this is a Western imperialist invention or something. No. Well, we have a Muslim person, Muslim thinker, who contributed to this tradition. It's a universal norm. So here's one idea that I'll be emphasizing in the chapter about Averroes. Now, another thinker in medieval Islam is also important. Uh, he lived a few centuries after Ibn Rushd, two centuries after Ibn Rushd, in northern Africa. His name is Ibn Khaldun. I don't know if you ever heard him. But Ibn Khaldun was not a philosopher like Averroes, but he was a historian, a sociologist, and an economist. And in his book, Muqaddimah, the introduction to history, he, uh, he observed the kingdoms in North Africa uh, in his time. And he, he had interesting observations. He says that the kingdoms that suppresses merchants go down, whereas the kingdoms that actually uh, uh, cherish trade, give safety to uh, merchants, and protect the market, prosper. He also said the kingdoms that have heavy taxes actually become poor, and the kingdoms that have high, lo very low taxes, counterintuitive as it is, become more wealthy. So he was the first person actually to write about free market ideas, and he influenced some Western thinkers. Montesquieu, for example, one of those. We don't know whether Adam Smith was familiar with his works, but there are resonances. And more significantly, he influenced some Western politicians. Um, one of them, I suspect, is a person that you're familiar with. Let's see what he said about Ibn Khaldun. The late US President Ronald Reagan. Let's see what he said. I studied economics in college when I was young. And I learned there about a man named Ibn Khaldun, who lived 1,200 years ago in Egypt. And 1,200 years ago, he said, in the beginning of the empire, the rates were low, the tax rates were low, but the revenue was great. He said, in the end of the empire, when the empire was collapsing, the rates were great, 
and the revenue was low. <laughs> Thank you. And the applause goes to President Reagan and Ibn Khaldun, I think both of them. And, uh, and President Reagan was right. I mean, you know this story much better than me, and I think he, he fixed the US economy when it was going downhill, and I think his principles are important. Uh, but again, ideas of free market are not just Western ideas. Well, we had Ibn Khaldun, a Muslim thinker from Northern Africa, who contributed to this. So that's why when I lecture about free markets in the Muslim world, I begin with quotes from Ibn Khaldun. Uh, because there is an Islamic case for free markets, and there is an Islamic case for freedom of speech, and there's an Islamic case for freedom of religion. Although the Malaysian police don't like to hear that, you know, we'll have to continue telling them about that. And I've been working on this for the, in the past two decades, and the world has become just a more dangerous place. And right now, I'm proud and honored that I'm under the roof of Cato, which has given me a strong basis, a, a secure home, you know, to be able to write about these issues and not to be uh, in a religious police jail again uh, anytime soon, I hope. So I'm thankful to, very thankful to Cato, thankful to Peter for bringing me there, and I'm thankful to you for being friends and supporters of Cato. Thank you. Thank you so much for your attention. So I think we have some time for questions, uh, and our friends will be bringing you the microphone. There's a gentleman right there. Yes. Mustafa, thank you for your fine and enlightening presentation. My name is Jim Healy. I'm privileged to serve as the Chicago representative of the Acton Institute. Oh. A few years ago, one evening at Acton University, I was privileged to have dinner with you. Okay. So I'm glad to have an opportunity to encounter you again. I'd like to ask you a question, if I may, please. There's something in the last paragraph of the text. Excuse me, sir, can you bring the microphone a bit closer? I don't yes, Thank yes, you. of course. Um, there's simply no Muslim pope or a central organization like the Catholic hierarchy whose suffocating authority needs to be broken. Now, you were talking in the context of the Protestant Reformation. I wondered, uh, did you mean to put this in the past tense, or did you deliberately put it in the present tense? Thank you, sir. Uh, that's a very good question. And uh, sorry if I offended any Catholic sensibilities with that comment. Now I'm thinking more clearly. First of all, it's great to catch up after Acton Institute, which is a, Acton University, which is a great event every year in Grand Rapids. Well, what I, that article uh, that I uh, shared uh, with you is just to emphasize that Islam is not like Catholicism, where you have a pope who can make decisions. Maybe it would be better if we had a pope, because then you would have a pope which decides that religious freedom is a good thing, and it will come down all the way. Islam is more like Protestantism. Uh, actually, on the great scheme of things, Islam is more like Judaism than Christianity. We should begin with that. I mean, if you want to compare among the world's religions, it's a legalistic religion, and it doesn't have, it has a very similar theology and jurisprudence to Judaism. Of course, Jews stopped implementing the legal code of Halakha, their law 2,000 years ago that saved them from many troubles, like stoning people, you know, to death. But in Islam, those, you know, legal things are still there in some countries, so that's a problem. Uh, what I meant there was, 
People say, oh, Islam needs a Martin Luther. Well, we need some change, but Luther is not the exact analogy. Luther was reacting to a centralized Catholic Church, and what he did was to break the authority of the Catholic Church. Was it authority, good or bad? I don't want to make a you know, decision about that, and sorry if I kind of... I, I meant the Catholic Church authority of the time. I didn't mean today. Uh, I mean, people generally think Protestant Reformation was a good thing. Of course, it depends on probably where you're looking for. But I mean, what he did was, okay, we, we don't have to listen to the Pope. But Luther was not a liberal, neither Calvin. Calvin actually burned heretics at stake in Geneva. Uh, so, and they unleashed a war, you know, a kind of conflict. What I'm saying is that we don't need a Luther in the Muslim world. We need a John Locke. We need John Stuart Mill. We need the Enlightenment. And so that was the right analogy. So that's, in, the, in that article, I was trying to say that. Uh, but I, and on the other hand, I appreciate a lot of things that Catholics, the Catholic Church has done in the past few centuries. I mean, the Second Vatican was a very important step forward, uh, like about human dignity, about equality, about freedom. And uh, those steps are the exact steps we have to take in the Muslim world. But we don't have a central authority. All you need, then all you have is there are 1.5 billion Muslims listening to different charismatic leaders or this imam or that tradition. It's an open field. That's why public intellectuals matter. And I'm trying to insert some ideas into this big scheme of a very diverse and complicated Muslim world. Thank you for your question, sir. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's right. Yeah, yeah.